Hello, and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Hey everyone, so welcome back to part two of the Inspiring Leadership Podcast with me, Lee Bowman-Perks, interviewing my husband and your host of the Inspiring Leadership Podcast, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. So as we left off in the last session, we were about to embark on the kind of the compass, the Inspiring Leadership Compass, which um, covers the eight components of Inspiring Leadership, which if you pull any of the levers of the eight components, you can become even more inspiring. And that's based on a global piece of work that's been done, um, a, a research with leaders around the world um, to understand what makes an inspiring leader, what helps them to perform in both their life and their work to make them very successful. And so um, we thought we'd cover these eight components off with Jonathan today to understand the lessons he's learned from the leaders that he's interviewed in the last 299 podcasts over the last few years. So let's start off with MQ, so morals, values, integrity, belief systems. I think this is where it all begins. It's the core, it's the character of who you are. It's the culture that we create in the organization that we operate in, but also it's the intention around our society um, that, that we also want to create. So it's the it's it's not just our own character, but it's actually the tone that we set for the environments that we lead that enable other people to operate in the most profound and inspiring way or in the most toxic and detrimental to society organizations teams way so it's almost like the where where we need to begin in order to set the tone for inspiring leadership and performance so my question to you jonathan is um uh, with morals, values, beliefs, integrity, if that's where we begin, what stood out for you in terms of the leadership interviews that you held um, across your podcasts and the common themes that came through? Mm. Yeah, this, this is the true north. Time and again, everybody said, got to get this one right, of the eight components. This is uh, true north doesn't change. Magnetic north does. It moves uh, nine mils, uh, 6,400 mils in a compass, but nine mils a year because the, the magnetic uh, field is moving around in the earth as it churns around inside. So we don't want our behaviors to be like that where we're just slightly adjusting a little bit. And, and leadership is about areas of shades of gray. It's not like it's very clear. This is black, this is white. You've got a choice, this or this. The, the, you know, as, as Churchill said, democracy is the least worst form of government of all these really bad forms of government. And, and I think it's the same with integrity, that everybody loves to believe they have very high integrity, they have values, they have principles, the way they believe the world should be. But they don't always live them. And, and this consistency is 
the thing that marks out the average or the expiring leaders from the inspiring leaders. And I think two, episode 200, General the Lord Dannett, um, I know this to be the case, having served with him for a number of years, both when he was commanding officer, when he was brigade commander, he he has a very strong faith and he has a very strong set of principles and values. We, And it's well worth listening to his interview because of the influence of his grandfather, who was a farmer in Norfolk and things like this. So, so he is someone, I believe, that aspires to live by his values and his principles. He may at times slip up. And I think that in itself is an interesting conversation for me. What happens when you slip up? How do you get back when you're off true north? How do you get back on true north? When you're living your life on purpose and you start living your life off purpose, how do you, which is the next question, how do you get back on? So he is a great one to listen to, episode 200. And also uh, Daniel Bernard, episode 202, and I'm about to re-interview him again uh, next week because you and I obviously went with him to the Emirates. Uh, and for him, it's all about truth and humanity. And at a time when there's so much war going on, whether it be in Ukraine or in Gaza, with sides taking chunks out of each other uh, and people behaving in just inhuman ways that we we need people to uh, keep keep the truth and keep the honesty, you know, back to what, what you uh, speak often about the three Ps of polarization, post-truth and populism. Yeah. Um, so really important one. A lot of them think they're very high integrity, but when they get 360 feedback from us using the Inspiring Leadership Campus, sometimes not everybody else thinks that they have such high moral values. Yeah. And indeed, there's an element to some of the psychometrics where their irreproachability is questionable, mm. whether they are not beyond reproach, that other people um, find them at times to be untrustworthy. Trust is the key. So I think this is a foundation stone of any inspiring leader get this wrong it takes you years to rebuild trust get it right and people willingly follow you yeah i think this is a really fascinating one because in our research um in the self-assessment approach when people start to self-evaluate against morals values and integrity they self-assess extremely high but when this is 360 view it's not always um, connected to what the leader be believes about themselves and I also think there's something about the sense check where um, there's something about you know when you live authentically to your own morals and values and belief systems but there's a bigger world out there um, of which everything that you do your character your choices in the day-to-day -day has an impact in your environment and I think this what's, is what makes MQ so fundamentally important because it goes far beyond your own reach to a bigger, broader scope. It's, it's, it's a macro level of the impact of your decisions that you make. And I think if, um, if I were to ask um, certain political leaders um, that we've had in our recent history in the UK, you know, have you been living according to your values and your belief systems? They go, absolutely. Um, do you fundamentally believe that you have integrity? Absolutely. And yet the impact of their values, the impact of their vision, everything that they have decided to do has been self-serving or in serving of 
something that is institutional rather than the greater good. And so, and that really concerns me when we think about morals, values, and belief systems, is we don't think about something in 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 terms of this the, the impact on a broader scale, um, the impact in society, the impact in communities, the impact for the long term. Um, uh, Mark, is it Mark Carney um, wrote the book on values? And he spoke about, you know, we we live a life according to it's very materialistic, it's very power hungry, um, it's very short term, and it's based on the value that we deliver to our shareholders, to the short term, to the three P's that you've just mentioned, you know, particularly populism. So what's popular what's popular for the here and now that will get me elected? What's popular for the here and now that will see me getting amazing rewards from this organization, this institution. Mm. And MQ, I feel it needs to, almost like we need to uplift ourselves to a higher level. Like where are the inspiring leaders of the yesteryear? Where are they today? Where can we look to in our society? And they are missing. And I know this topic speaks to your heart because we have lots of discussions about politics and you know military and everything that's going on in the world. And there's something for me about the higher level of MQ that goes beyond self-serving and feeling like you're living to your values to actually what is a basic set of human values that is lived throughout the world. And where are those inspiring leaders now that we need to see? Not only do we need to see, we need to elect. We almost need to be courageous, not to the, you know, those populist leaders that kind of are delivering so much rubbish to us so much untruth to us that we need to actually change be courageous in some of the choices that we need to make make in a democracy in our conversations um uh internationally um that goes beyond what is self-serving self-serving as a country self-serving as an organization to something that's far more courageous and i just want to ask you the question about that because i know that we love we love you know, what's going on, international affairs and what's going on around the world. What are your thoughts around this particular component that leaders should now, wherever they've been, it's done. You cannot change that. But it's almost like wherever you go to now, it's totally your choice. It's within your power to actually deliver on. And you can continue to deliver what you've always done. And it will never get you there to the bigger vision and the choices that you make now, the behaviors that you have, the modeling that you do, it impacts society, it impacts your team, it impacts organizations. What's your advice based on what you know about how people should show up differently and courageously? Because it's about the next generation, right? It's not just about us. We're just like, um, we're just like the scum on the earth. <laughs> we're here for, if we live the hundred hundred year life, we're lucky, right? Hmm. Well, it, it's such a big topic, but I think from what I've seen with the most inspiring leaders that I've either worked for or coached, they are prepared to resign, leave the organization over their integrity. And I remember I irritated the director of infantry who was 
ranting about a decision the government made to get rid of a number of different regiments. And he thought this is a real disgrace and it's shocking and it's wrong and the army can't get this small. And I, as a major sitting in the audience, then asked the hand grenade question. Excuse me, General, if, if you feel that strongly, why didn't you resign? There was a deathly hush. And it, he blustered and, and but you know, if, if I wasn't there holding the fort at the helm, then the, the, the whole organization would go adrift. But he afterwards tried to really damage me personally for asking such a question, which is a very poor reflection on him. And I know that Field Marshal the Lord Chapel um, was very upset about the same changes. He was the head of the army, but he waited until he'd got his knighthood, uh, been made a member of the House of Lords and his baton, his his pension for life, which meant that he, he was on full pension, full pay for life. And then he wrote an article about how wrong it was, but he waited throughout the time it was going on when the army needed some direction. And I thought, I'm sitting in the, you know, if I was in his place, what would I do? I don't know. It's, it's very easy for us to be um, self-righteous and take the high ground. I would never do that. But when, when you're there in the situation, I've done some things which I'm ashamed of. I, I've lacked integrity at a number of different times in my life. But I am quite determined not to go back and do those kind of things again. Because I want you, my wife, my children, um, my grandchildren, my friends, to trust me, but particularly my clients, and to know that what I say I will do is done with integrity. And if I have made a mistake, to talk with them, rectify it, apologize. And I think there's some great questions for CEOs. Question one. When was the last time you personally were dead wrong? Mm. The good ones, the real inspiring leaders go, do you know what, Jonathan? I'm frequently wrong every day. That's interesting. I had one or two who went, no, uh, it's a really hard one for me. Can't think of a time I was wrong. Could have been 1974, but that wasn't really my fault. It was somebody else at the time. So they're never wrong. And that's really deeply worrying. The second question to the inspiring leader rather than the bluffer is how quickly did you realize you were wrong and rectify the situation and they tell you. And the third one is, and how quickly did you apologize to those who were badly impacted by your poor decision and getting it wrong and just say, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. And the really good ones like General uh, Sir Rupert Smith, who was um, Deputy Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. We had him on the podcast. That's a podcast worth listening to. Um, he, he'd said, you know, quite frequently he'd go into meetings and they go, oh, General, what do you think? And he'd put his feet up on the back of the chair in front of him and go, chaps, I haven't got a clue. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, right. They sort of thought the great man would have the answer to everything, you know, um, the answer to the universe and um so, so I think people who have real integrity are prepared to be appropriately vulnerable. And that's quite rare. A lot of time, politicians never like to be vulnerable because they think then they're out of power. But to actually say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. 
and to be prepared to resign. These days they have to be pushed. And normally the prime minister says they have my full confidence, which is normally shorthand for I haven't fired them yet, but I'm about to. And and then they go uh, for for personal reasons and family reasons they've left. No, I I know some leaders who go. Our colleague left because he didn't follow our values. Now they don't say he had his hand in the till because that might be some legal issue. But they went. He didn't follow our values, and that's why we've asked him to leave. But everyone else knows that that, that it, there is consequences, and this is the thing. I think there's got to be. There's got to be a reason to have values in society and morals and principles and ways of behaving, whether it be religious or whatever it is. And if people don't follow them, there's got to be some consequences. And I think where leaders get weak, CEOs get weak, is that they know someone's done something wrong, but they don't want to follow through with the consequences and tackle them because they're a friend of theirs or they've known them for 15 years. But actually, everybody else thinks the leader's weak because they haven't stuck by the values they espouse. So if the values you espouse do not match the organization you're in, you need to leave. And that's why I left one of my jobs as a managing director, because I found the way the organization was going and the values they were espousing and how they were behaving were at loggerheads. I couldn't live by that way. So I I enjoyed my time there for, for many years, but I I made a choice to resign and leave. And the person I was working for, I found very hard to work for. And their values and the way they treated people was not uh, safe um, and psychologically safe, nor inspiring. It was expiring. It was a culture of fear and intimidation. I didn't want to work in that environment. So I chose to resign. And um, I'm very pleased I did. But it was hard at the time. And people thought, you're being a bit sort of principled about this. Well, yeah. And if you have, I think it's Oscar Wilde. My final thought was Oscar Wilde said, a lady or a gentleman, someone who knows what they will do and what they won't do. Now he had his problems himself, but the quote is very relevant. Yeah. And it reminds me as well that when you are in the most senior positions in organizations, it can be very lonely at the top and also very exposing and how the media, the environment around you cannot just topple things um, and expose things in a sub, but it almost that there's a fear factor. There's a there's something in the system now more than ever before, which m makes it more risky to be vulnerable as a leader. And yet it's so important that we we really lean into our integrity and a value system that goes beyond self. And I suppose if there's a final thought around that, what, what what's your thought to help leaders think about that? Yeah. When trust is gone, they should go. So mm -hmm. if there's an individual where trust has been lost, there may be an occasion for um, retraining um, and redevelopment of someone who's done that. Um, but quite often it's damaged forever. Mm. And um, so I think th the needs to be, okay, if there is a chance and somebody's done something wrong once, fine. But if they did it twice, fool on you. You know, it could be a teachable moment. But I do think that when 
integrity is damaged, it's very, very hard. And there's been occasions when I've done things wrong and it pretty much never really recovered. Um, so I think it's, it's a, it's MQ moral quotient values, principles, something we've got to live by and trust is what, whenever I do an offsite, they're always wanting to build high levels of trust between their colleagues. And it's both the MQ and the next one that we're going to do PQ, mm -hmm. which are key in that, the vision, the mission and why we do what we do. So can I just, um, lean into the MQ a little bit more? And because so often in our coaching scenarios, in our work with leaders, they are struggling with the concept of how do I build trust? How do I address the, the conflicts that are existing within my team or my organization or even my internal conflicts? How do I rebuild my reputation? Um, I've made mistakes, but how do I rebuild that? How do I develop new teams? Um, how do I create dialogues between almost like these opposing systems um, that exist. And if you were to say a few top tips, tips around how do you build or rebuild trust, what, what would your thoughts be? Mm, I was talking about this with someone the other day in their coaching and uh, it, it requires them to go around and recalibrate the way they've shown up with people and that they haven't lived according to the espoused values, that they're not role modeling what they're espousing. I go, look, I'm really sorry. Uh, I, I, I was going through a difficult time. I, I wasn't behaving in a way I'm proud of now. And I think it had an impact on you. And I'm sorry. I, I unreservedly apologize um, for what went on. And I've done that myself. Um, personally, as well as uh, in a work setting. And it's incredibly powerful when it's authentic. And and that there is that you want to reset the dial and work closely with them to rebuild trust. But trust is everything. I mean, there was that famous one from uh, an American colonel who was shot down over uh, Vietnam. Uh, no career, shot down over career, and he was taken a prisoner for um, Stockdale, Colonel Stockdale, uh, and he, he was prisoner for oh I don't know eight years. It was horrendous, but he managed to write a letter to his young son, and he said the word is integrity. That is the word. It, it nothing else matters. The word is integrity, and he lived by it and almost died for it. Uh, was very badly tortured but the soldiers would follow him anywhere. And I see some of the best officers and some of the worst officers that I've met, which is in situations where there's life or death situations. So it's more intense than it is in, in a CO situation where I've been there. But even with COs where some, I could completely trust their integrity and I would follow them anywhere. And others, it was very flexible, very malleable, and depended on how it best served them and their career and their ambition for promotion or more money or a bigger deal or part of a sell-off or a merger or an acquisition, they would do whatever it took to get whatever they wanted. And I didn't want to work for them ever again and haven't stayed in touch with them. Yeah. But the ones like Richard Dannett and John Griffin and John Stoker, 
who, while they've made their own mistakes over time, have the highest integrity. I, I learned so much from them. Yeah, I see that in um, people like Alison Nemo and Alison Hutchinson and um, uh, the Remitley team. They, they just There's so many exemplar kind of role models of actually uh, uh, what that looks like. So this leads us very nicely into, so once you know who you are and what you stand for, it's almost like crafting that vision for your yourself, your organization, for your community. Um, so finding purpose and meaning in the work that you do. Um, so PQ is the second component of the Inspiring Leadership Compass. So what did you learn from the leaders that you interviewed around um, not just finding purpose and their why, but how to execute really well um, on delivering against their purpose? So we've sometimes we've got so many wonderful visions for our lives and ourselves and our organizations, but actually to execute on that is, is something fundamentally different. So what have you learned from the people that you've interviewed? Mm. The military get this really right. And as you know, many of my guests have been military inspiring leaders. There are more of them around. It's it's a bigger selection process from the moment they try and go to officer training at Sandhurst. They go through a selection process. A lot of people are weeded out. They get to Sandhurst. They're constantly weeded out day by day, week by week. They come out of there. They join the regiments. They go on another course. They're selected and so on all the way through. And they must spend, certainly in my 20 years, I reckon a quarter of a million pounds on training and developing me. Now, as one of my friends said, that was a bit of a waste of money. You're not very good, really, are you? <laughs> but aside from the, the sarcasm, um, if somebody spends 25,000 pounds on one of their leaders over their career, they think that's a lot of money. But just like if you think, if you think training and development and coaching is expensive, try the cost of failure. And if you get it wrong, it, it's huge. It goes into millions. But people don't see that. They just see, that, oh, I'm not sure I want to spend that kind of money. Oh, no. But so I think we were always brought up in the military with what's the mission? What's the vision? What, what is the purpose? Why are we doing this? If you're sending someone to their potential death, they want to know why. And, and you, they just won't do it. If, if there's no clear why. But I think of two CEOs or presidents that I was impressed by in their podcast. One was one that you enjoyed as well, Nando Cesarone, mm -hmm. episode 204. He's the president of UPS America, USA. And, and I said, you know, what is your purpose? Why, why, why do you exist? He said, well, my purpose is to deliver healthcare, helping economies grow and assisting people's dreams come true. He said, I began in one of the brown vans, delivering parcels. It's not just delivering parcels. It's about making their dreams come true, getting the item to someone so they can achieve the thing they want, the vital medicines that they need in COVID, getting the vaccinations to people, you know, it, getting the aircraft from place to place with crucial, uh, crucial materials that people need and not getting them has a huge impact. So he was someone that you and I both found deeply inspiring. And the other one who I thought was very good was Mark O'Leary, who was um, uh, on uh, episode, I think, 297. And he's the CEO of EE and the BT's consumer division. And again, a very inspiring CEO. People really love working for him. Yes, BT always get people's brunt because it's a 
a service across the UK and where's my broadband and all this kind of thing. But to um, to really inspire people, have a purpose in what you do about getting the country connected, I think it's very important. So meaning and purpose, without meaning and purpose, we are lost. And even the other day, our daughter, Bryony, dropped me a note to say she's got a friend of a friend of hers, parents of a friend of hers. They've sort of lost their sense of meaning and purpose. You know, is there a retreat or something they can do to, to find meaning and purpose now they're in retirement? And I think I think that's really important that we've always got to be living our life on purpose, not off purpose. But we've got to find what does it mean to be living your life on purpose? Why are you here? What are you in service of? Yeah, that's what I love. I, I I think I said to you as well. I absolutely. I came off the the call with uh, the, the listening to the podcast uh, with Nando talking about the UPS, and I've always seen the the brown UPS van with the brown kind of uniform, and it was transactional. And when I listened to that podcast, I was truly inspired by a leader that started, you know, at the very beginning, worked his way up through into the top echelons, but yet never lost connection with his roots. And so he spoke about the fact that he was still connected with people that he worked with um, so many decades ago. And um, and I was really inspired by that. Um, I, I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. And also this connection between, uh, I was listening to the General Petraeus one, mm -hmm. I got that right. Um, and he spoke about the task of the strategic leader which is, it's not only about creating this compelling vision, um, which I'm a visionary, right? I love kind of the big picture stuff and, you know, how are we going to change the world? How do we, you know, make a difference to the lives of women, hundreds and thousands and millions of women around the world, all that big visionary stuff. But he spoke about kind of getting quickly to the big ideas. And so, so often we have this visionary kind of content which almost like attaches people to us, but then we lack that that connection to the big ideas. And so then people start to um, filter off and they lose energy. There's an erosion of trust and support around the vision because they actually don't see how you actually kind of get there. And he also spoke about kind of the communication that's needed, needed around it to make sure that you're executing well. And when I listened to you speaking with um, Tootle? Yes, um, Colonel Stuart Tootle. Colonel uh, Stuart CO3 power, yeah. Yeah, so, and he spoke about the importance of decision-making and so that upward-downward, and it's almost like you get excited as a leader kind of in that visionary space and you go, right, now crack on with it. Or you micromanage, so you either kind of completely let go of the reins. They go, yeah, but, yeah, what does that mean? Or you kind of are micromanaging along the way. So that kind of either upward or downward delegation that's also going on um, and how there's a kind of real struggle. And Tuta was speaking about the fact that, you know, whilst he was operating in kind of the battle space of 40,000 square meters of hostile terrain, um, and it, it, it might not be that for organizational leaders, but it can certainly almost feel like that is this dynamic that goes on between how do you create the vision? How do you create the big ideas? And then how do you let go? And I know that's a big challenge for many of our leaders that we work with is getting from the balcony to the dance floor 
at the right times in order to kind of affect the environment at which they're they're kind of operating. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, Bal- Balcony Desert versus Dance Floor has been very helpful to many leaders hmm. because um, as Marshall Goldsmith, who trained you and I up in, in his process of coaching and is a, a real character, he wrote one of his books was What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And many people... Uh, there's the story of going back to the guns. Remember that one I told you about going back to the cannons? Yes. Yeah. Share with the listeners. I, 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 perhaps it'd be a short story, but it, it, it is the Battle of Salamanca, I believe it was. Wellington is there. He's got a new uh, team of generals. There's about five of them up on the hill. It's a very steep hill looking down over the French and I think the Spanish allies are against them. And he is fighting alongside various allies, including the Portuguese and I think some German troops as well that are Hanoverians who are fighting on the British side or the English side as it was then. And um, as they're watching the battle and it's early in the battle, he suddenly notices that one of his, his young, recently promoted generals who's in charge of the artillery ride off the hill without asking his permission and and ride down to to just a battery of guns there's I think six guns in a battery at that time um and, and he ties up his horse and he moves the captain out of the way and he starts giving instructions to the guns to fire against the french and then he gets so involved that he moves the the, the actual guy who's got the ramrod and the cannonballs and he's lifting up cannonballs and putting it down the thing and he's ramming them in he's lighting the fuse and uh, the next thing he knows, he's got a tap on his shoulder from an ADC, one of those jobs I did. And there was actually a real reason for ADCs in those days for generals. They had a number of them because they were very expendable. They get sent around the battlefield to send the general's messages, but often they get shot, uh, which is what happened to my two predecessors, of course, as you know, they got <laughs> metaphorically shot. Um, and he got the tap on the shoulder and he turned around. Yes, what is it? I'm busy. He said... Uh, so the uh, the general sends uh, Lord Lord Wellesley sends his best wishes and uh, asks for you to rejoin him. Oh, tell him I'm busy. I'm fighting the battle. All oh, right, sir. Well, he told me to tell you if you really do believe that that you're relieved of command. Oh no 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 no. Okay, fine. I'm coming. I'm coming. Oh, for God's sake, uh, Captain, carry on. The captain's going. Thank God for that. And just get this guy out of the way. He really doesn't know his stuff. And and he rides away, leaving the guys to get on fighting the battle, doing what they know, because, of course, he went back to the area he was comfortable with. He was artillery. It was a technical arm. He was special, and, and he wanted to be back in the detail where he was most comfortable. But he rides back up to Wellington, and Wellington gives him one of his serious looks. Doesn't need to say very much. And he says, General, I pay you to make one decision a day. Look at the battlefield. What do you see? And he looked at the battlefield, and there's a... a a, va- a small valley to the left. And he said, my God, sir, in the in the valley, out of sight of where I was, there's about 20,000 French advancing down that side. He said, yes, exactly. Where are your guns, your horse cavalry, your, your horse artillery? Where is it positioned? They're on the right flank, sir. Where do they need to be? I'll reposition three regiments onto the left flank to fire into the valley. Good, do it. And so he gives the command, rides off to make sure that's happened. Uh, but then he comes back and, and he said, he gets that message that you shouldn't go back down to the guns. That's not what he was paid to do. 
He was paid to make one decision. And indeed, the action that he took, enfiladed, as they call it, fires into the side of the French, just slaughtered them, grape shot and all sorts of stuff, bodies everywhere. And and the 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 English won the Battle of Salamanca. It's one of the great battles that we celebrate with the Portuguese, which stopped uh, France and Spain invading Portugal. They were about to invade Portugal and they, they were stopped uh, at the lines of Torre Vedras, which is later on. But the point is that lesson is relevant for many of the CEOs I get each day. They're either on the dance floor when they should be, and they love doing the dance moves. They know all those dance moves. That's where they grew up. But we need them on the balcony to see the patterns of where fights are breaking out and where the bouncer is and what goes on. And it's the same. Some of them take the the hint about you're on the Titanic. Don't be down tapping the dials on the on the pressure gauges and shoveling coal into the furnaces. You seem to be up on the top and you look out five miles and you go, iceberg five miles ahead, one degree to port. Aye, aye, Captain, one degree to port. And that's it. No one knows much about it. There's no drama. There's no excitement. But that's what they're paid to do. I mean, I say to some of the CEOs, a tip that one CEO gave me, he said, I'm paid to make three decisions a year. To go work out what those three are, see them through, execute on them and deliver on them. But that's where I add the most value. Mm -hmm. Not lots of small decisions, which could be made by other people who are at the front where they know what's going on. They're the artillerymen down there fighting the battle. They know what's going on. They can do that. So let the decisions be made at the lowest possible level. And that's what Commander David uh, Marquet said and various people like uh, trust and inspire, give trust. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, was it whether we... Give command uh, and create leaders. Take command and create followers. So you, you need to give give power to people that they can make decisions themselves and think for themselves. And then they own it mm. rather than just waiting for you to tell them what to do. And they do nothing until you tell them. And because you're so critical, you're probably ripping them apart anyway, so they don't do anything. So you paralyze the organization. I've seen many leaders do that. They want to be the smartest man or smartest woman in the room. And it's not going to end well. Mm. That's what's so lovely about your earlier story. It's almost like, um, you know, that that delegation, but also if people fail, how do you respond? If if something happens, how do you respond um, in in those moments? And that's that that's the true power of inspiring leadership or toxic leadership, you know, um, de dependent on what your response is. Let's move into the third component of the compass, which is health and well-being. So if you know who you are and what you stand for, if you've got a compelling vision and you're executing, you're planning around it, then how do you look after your health? And there's a big piece of um, Harvard um, research around the corporate athlete, but health, um, physical, mental, emotional, what you do for yourself, but also how you create that environment for the people you are leading is extremely important. So what have you learned um, through interviewing your different guests around how to look after your own health, first of all, number one, but also how do you create a really healthy environment so everybody can thrive? Yeah, I think this is such an important one. And and this is what I, it was your idea to 
shape the inspired leadership model to have a health quotient in it. Most models don't have health as part of it. I think it's one that makes the model so strong that health and resilience are in there. And they both, of course, have an interaction on each other. You can be uh, over-resilient and has an impact on your health. And um, if you don't look after your health, it'll affect your resilience. But they all recognize them, their health and well-being, mental and physical, are crucial. And so if I think of a couple of people, three of them actually, Barbara Cox Lovesey, who's become a good friend of yours and mine, episode 162, really about, she's very knowledgeable as a nutritionist, about the importance of targeting our nutrition and the supplements that we have and which ones should they be. And also things like hot and cold therapy, which as you remember when I had it working, I was plunging and you were plunging as well into the, the cold bath and then the, the hot... things you get me into. <laughs> I know, and I have a picture, I have evidence of you, you sitting do. in a bucket up to your neck with ice all around you. Um, but it is very good for you, the hot and cold uh, therapy. Indeed, you know, damaging on the cycle ride, my, my finger, the uh, physio was saying, you know, ice pack, then heat, then ice pack, then heat. The body, it's a way of getting rid of inflammation. So she is a, a font of knowledge. Uh, Yilmaz Ashidis, um, who is the CMO of Premier Foods, um, episode 201, uh, was a pleasure to coach him. And he really took to heart the wearable technology. He's got an aura ring like you, whereas I've got my... Um, my uh, whoop band uh, and Daniel, our son's got a whoop band too. This, this idea of knowing your data, your technology is very important. And uh, oh, dog here's come and join me. Um, and then Graham Brown was a great inspiration to me. Graham and I did a number of podcasts together. We had quite a lot of fun and um, he's, he's done Ironman and various endurance things. So I think a lot of the really inspiring leaders, they tend to do quite a lot around their fitness. Um, and they spend a lot of focused time on looking after their mental health. They do mindfulness. They do meditation. Um, they do take downtime. Sometimes they don't. They, they're workaholics, and that's a disease they have to, or an addiction they have to cope with. But it's such an important part. Yeah. And so I, I think this is really important. We, we work, work so hard for ourselves, for our others, for organizations, but then that self-care is is one that often becomes neglected or there are some excuses and I have to say you know I am one of those people that along the way I'm just like I am a you know um a bit of a uh I, I love to party I love to enjoy life I've even categorized it as enjoying life um so there's there's an attachment that we have to certain substances and um that, that that we kind of have that feel good factor around so if you were to and actually we've seen some leaders that we've worked with along the way that um have some real challenges with addictions and whatever those and and self-soothing so addictions whether it's around work or whether it's around substances or whatever um and self-soothing again back to substances or alternative kind of um, kind of activities and so to transform your life to almost like um create this shift in your belief system from this is what is good for you to actually actually this is deeply unhealthy to making new habits new routines new regimes what's what's your advice to people because you've there are so many leaders 
um, which people won't know generally, but that you have worked with where you they've said to you, you have saved my life. Um, and their impact, their impact that they've had in their families as well, it's not just their lives, but the impact on their families. So any yeah words of wisdom just in this space because i think it's so important yeah i mean um time and again you can't outrun poor diet that's the first thing so the diet is the foundation of everything uh and you and i have this great app with you've got naomi and i've got adam northover um who are giving us you know advice on not only the training we're doing but the food we're eating and the food we're eating is the key to the training we then do and a lot of people think i'll just I'll, i'll still eat junk food and highly processed food and utter crap that i have in airports and around the place as i'm going along or eat on the hoof and and that'll be fine because I'll, i'll go and do a run or I'll, uh, i'll i'll run on the treadmill for ages in the morning first thing at four in the morning uh but they don't get enough sleep and uh they're exhausted and so so i think health is a really really big one Um and I was really moved by Jessica Smith who shared her vulnerability around um being a Paralympic swimmer um and she spoke of the pain of meddling and actually not getting into the finals kind of people that make assumptions about what's happened for her in the in that space but it it is not the case and she felt kind of real shame and depression around it and she also spoke around her eating disorders and what that meant for her body where she couldn't perform um and uh she also spoke about uh, uh, and i think this is important as well for what we've just been talking about is this assumption around rehab and it wouldn't help so she had an assumption that rehabilitation um is probably not going to fix her because of all of the anxieties the depression that she had um and the space that she was in now she she did go through that process and i think partly it was because she owned it um sometimes i think people don't own what's going on for them or their accountability the responsibility around their behaviors in that process um and as a result of kind of being at rock bottom in her life she transformed her life into um into a way that she's actually now in service of other people helping the kind of the platform um of disability and raising the voice of disability around the world um changing systems set changing culture um so i just wondered if there's any final thoughts around health and well-being that would be helpful for for leaders that might be struggling at the moment which is that self-care piece or even that accountability piece around the decisions that they're making today have an impact on those around them which can cause toxicity what they might want to be thinking about no mm, it's a really important area i think the first one is you need to have a look in the mirror look at the man or the woman in the mirror and go what am i seeing and and be honest with yourself and then get help um in the form of uh, a trainer who's a nutritionist or understands nutrition um and also make sure that you get more balance in your life people have um completely overindexed on one area and and it it the whole system's unbalanced so yeah th- this is a big area that you need someone to be honest with you and to call out the emperor has no clothes
mm. and that the, the way you're living your life will shorten it. I'm big into longevity. Is Now I'm in my seventh decade. It matters a lot to me. And um, I don't know what's going to end my life, but I'm certainly going to make sure it's not because I've actually eaten badly. I mean, I've given up alcohol now. Um, I want to still have a lot of fun with you and travel and do various things, but but I'm certainly looking after my uh, health through you know, endurance cycling and uh, three to four times a week doing weight training. These things are very important. You've got to make them the big rocks that you put in your diary and they're not negotiable. You've got to do them. There was a great um, uh, television series. Was it Limitless or something or Limits or, um, with Chris Hemsworth? And that was a really mm. insightful process to kind of go through about um, health and longevity uh, as well, which will be a good one for people to look up to, uh, to look up. Um, let's move on to, I'm going to combine a little bit of the next, uh, the next two components, um, which is emotional intelligence, um, which we understand actually, and cognitive intelligence. So cognitive intelligence actually only correlates with, in, in isolation, it only correlates with 6% of performance. And emotional intelligence um, uh, correlates with 30% of performance, that's 36. So you want to achieve full performance, full inspiration, you kind of go around the whole model. But the, these two are really important areas, which is our interaction with the world, how we think, how we collaborate, how we build relationships, how we learn, how we develop our wisdom. Um, what have you learned um, along the way in terms of the skills that leaders have um, through your interviews or even just the work that you do with your CEOs around how to uh, manage and utilize your emotions intelligently and how to think intelligently, but not just cognitively in your own right, but through the wisdom of others as well. Yeah, I think I think the thing that derails many of the leaders I work with is they let their emotions get out of control. And um, the consequences of that is that people don't trust them, they're wary of them, um, they create a fear-based culture. So um, I, I think back to a few of the, if we combine EQ and CQ, a few, a few of the uh, people are really worth listening to. One was Chip Massey, who's going to be one of the episodes coming up uh, shortly. Uh, he was an FBI hostage negotiator and uh, has written a great book on that topic. Um, I'm just looking for it now. I haven't got it it's on my bookshelf. But uh, yeah, sitting up on my bedside, I'm about to read it. Uh, Chip was was great fun uh, learning about using his using his skills um, to 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 understand people and read them. And the other one was Herb Lang, who um, was on the ride for unity with us, uh, a Harlem Globetrotter, uh, episode two nine two, and just the way that children flocked to him, and he sat among the children just as happy as a little sandboy. And his big thing is kindness is key and he has a wonderful way of reading people and being at ease in his own skin. And then on the right unity, not only him, but there was Sheikha Sarah Ameri, who um, was originally from Iran, fascinating lady. She, she did so much as our managing director to make things happen. And all her connections were wonderful to, to get us to some of the schools and the orphanages and things like that. And then Faisal Al-Nuwami, who is a, a Sheikh, a prince in his own right, uh, episode 295 with uh, Sarah. And uh, we always used to have a saying when 
Daniel Bernard, who was one of the key organizers of the whole thing, got a little bit um, a little bit anxious about things going wrong or whatever. I'd say be more like Faisal, uh, because Faisal was always super cool and a very good listener, really so attentive listener and very egoless. But yet he had much to be proud of with his uh, Ferraris and um, his uh, horses and the lifestyle that he lives. But he he's very understated, which was lovely. Yeah, lovely. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. And just for the listeners, um, Ride for Unity, just to give some context, was an aspirational kind of dream goal um, pre the 7th of October events. Um, of one individual to run an event across the seven Amirati states um, where we would cycle, we would speak, we would support schools and universities and business leaders, um, and we would connect with tradition and hope and vision and strategy and everything that is um, so prevalent across the United Arab Emirates. Um, And when the 7th of October happened, we thought this can't take place. And a really, because uh, just with everything that's going on in the world. Um, and so you and I thought, well, actually, it's probably going to be postponed. It's going to be something for later on, just not now. And thanks to a visionary leader and a managing director in Sarah. So Daniel, Sarah, and the team that stood behind that, um, they made it happen in January against all of the odds, which was absolutely so profound, so inspirational. And I can remember us all sitting at a meal one evening um, and it was tough, right? So cycling across, you know, in, in all types of heats and uh, et cetera, and doing all the events that were planned um, with some of the people that you've described. And I can remember sitting in the at the meal in the evening and we had an Israeli, we had some Arabs, we had some, you know, um, Sarah from Iran, we had Europeans, we had people from the US, we had some British, you know, um, we had um, a whole Egypt, kind of, the Lebanon, the, Egypt, yeah. Lebanon, this whole table, this kind of long table of all these different nationalities that were talking, chatting, laughing, um, they, they were part of a bigger vision, a part of something that was so aligned. Um, and just, again, to give some context, Ride for Unity was all about creating unity, diversity, tolerance, inclusion, sustainability, everything that you want to see in the world, everything that actually the normal person that 95, 99% of the world actually want and need right now are all of those different things. And these leaders, a small group of leaders, brought this concept together. And despite the context, they crafted this and they implemented it against all of the odds. It was the most inspiring event, I think, that that you and I have been on for quite some time. Yeah, no doubt about it. Exceptional. Yeah. And um, really great. So what's next? Okay. Let, let's keep going. So let's keep going. RQ is the next one resilience resilience we needed that on ride for unity most definitely there were times on those upward hills those upward trajectories when i was ready to cry and go i can't do this 
Anyway, so how do the most successful guests pick up after kind of, you know, pick themselves up after adversity? Yeah, well, I mean, um, firstly, I won't have you say that. You, you're a very strong, um, physically healthy uh, leader. And when I see you uh, bench press and squat huge weights, uh, <laughs> I'm not, not going to let you get away with that. You easily ate up 25 to 30 kilometers uh, a day. Uh, with no problem. Um, so I think I have this... to say that is thanks to um, my amazing trainer Zach George, who has beasted the hell out of me. So you are the sum of the people that you surround yourself by. This which is he's true. A, he's a next gen gladiator. He's on the BBC at the moment. So um, for all our listeners, do watch out for him. He's absolutely phenomenal as a trainer. Um, train with him if you dare. <laughs> if you dare, he's steel in gladiators. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, so I have a little dog here who's just trying to um, agitate for me to give her some supper. Um, Justin Levine, Rodney Flowers, uh, Justin was episode 293, Rodney Flowers, episode 178, Jessica Smith, 296, you mentioned her, and Harry Buddha McGar, episode 291. These four are just a, a tip of the iceberg of people who've shown immense resilience and, of course, a lot of the military special forces guys have to, it's just part of their training and getting through selection for the Navy SEALs or selection for airborne or selection for the commandos or selection for the US Marines. But anyway, Justin has become a good friend of yours and mine in just the short space of time, spending a week together. But he was um, through an incident in a hospital. He was left paraplegic and, um, so he had the handbike, uh, but even while he was recovering from what went on, he just would set himself small targets to get up the hill to the hospital on his on his crutches um, or in his wheelchair, whatever it might be. But he just just a man of immense uh, resilience. And he's also the world champion at Jiu Jitsu, um, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which is in itself just stunning to watch him doing a chokehold on you. Or teaching you different <laughs> chokers because you like your you like your jujitsu. I do like my jujitsu. Uh, Rodney was an NFL player, um, and uh, he uh, again got landed on badly. It paralyzed him, and again the fight in him to get up a hill. He'd give himself a hill, and he'd hobble up there with his crutches and things to to make it to the top of the hill. Even when he'd fall over, he'd pick himself back up. Jessica being born um, with uh, a partial uh, arm, uh, but yet she became an Olympic swimmer. Uh, phenomenal at overcoming that and the the mental health issues that she had, as you say, for not meddling uh, was phenomenal. And then Harry Buddha Magar, who was a, a really determined, fine, I think he was a corporal in the in the Gurkha, the Royal Gurkha Rifles, but blown up by an IED. Uh, improvised explosive device which took off both his legs they had to amputate his legs above the knee and yet he spent his time climbing various mountains and finally this last year in episode 291 he summited Everest uh, with little claws for feet on these stumps of legs um, and I couldn't think of a man who has more resilience than than those people Harry, Jessica, Rodney and Justin. Yeah. And you know who I'd like to also acknowledge in this, because we rode with him um, at Ride for Unity. Oh, yes, Carlo. And that is Carlo. Now, you've got to tell the story of Carlo, because literally we would be cycling along and I would be, 
you know, almost crying, going, oh, go on, do this. No, I wasn't really. I was actually really enjoying it. But um, Carlo, literally, he would be a force to reckon with. And he would have his music playing and he would be taking, as we're we're cycling along and the safety cars and the police cars all all kind of surrounding us, getting through the different Emirates states. Um, But... He was a force to reckon with, but also his personal communications with whether it be in the schools and how he treated the children to how he treated the team, how he showed up, how he gifted things to everybody, knowing that actually resilience just didn't come from within. But it was something that he had to share for other people so that we could ride solidly together. And um, I was like really impressed by this individual but can you just share a little bit more about carlo and our experience well carlo we're gonna have to do a podcast with him if if, yeah uh, we can understand some of his italian mixed with his english but carlo um uh, was on a a tricycle um but he had been a almost national level cyclist for italy and italy is famous for its its endurance cyclists uh, and he was up there with the best of them. And he was, a, uh, and still is a very handsome man, but a handsome uh, helicopter pilot, uh, colonel in the Italian army. But during the war in Bosnia, and I was there just shortly after the war uh, in the peace support operations, but during the war, he was picking up civilians from some of the battlefields that were going on where depleted uranium rounds were being used by the Serbs and the Bosnians against each other. And that radiation in places where they were picking people up gave him heavy metal poisoning, very serious heavy metal poisoning, him and a number of other people. And he has about 24 different illnesses, including Parkinson's. As a result of this uh, heavy metal poisoning, he needs an oxygen tank on his tricycle. And um, what a guy. The fact that you know he's having blood transfusions every couple of months in England, Hemel Hempstead, and then he goes back and does it all over again. And he was cycling at times 30, 50 kilometers an hour I mean, I find it hard with the downwind to get up to, I think I got up to 42 kilometers an hour, but um, him at 50, the man's a machine. It just, and and if you ever feel like having a bad day, think what Carlo's going through and the amount of tablets and medications that he has to take each day to live. And yet he's he's found his calling in continuing to cycle and the the good he does for children and others. I would really encourage um, people to actually follow people like, you know, in the age of social media, um, where instead of just anybody that we might follow around anything is just to really think about who are the leaders that inspire us. We think about the inspiration and the role models that we have around us. So Carlo would absolutely be one. Justin Levine would be another. Daniel Bernard would be be another. Um, Who else? Amy Gillingham, mm. um, you know, all these all these people from the Ride for Unity, look up Ride for Unity, because actually that is a message of inspiration, resilience. And, and, and Leia Tedrow, who then after Leia she Tedrow. done the Ride for Unity, then went and came third in the, uh, the Dubai. In the Dubai. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, was it uh, Sprint? Uh, she did every leg of the ride for unity every leg across the desert and everything and then went on to do the triathlon she is a super athlete and super inspiration what an amazing group and we're gonna have it on the podcast we are in the in the not too distant future so right let's move on to because i think we've spoken about individuals and we've spoken about 
so many and your own experiences but there are brands that have been stand out through all of this and the next component is bq which is brand presence impact and influence now you can look at it through the individual leadership lens and i think there's so much to be said around that but what i'm really curious about is actually those big brands those big organizations that are making a huge difference not just internally but actually externally to the environment around them and i suppose what have you learned from the leaders that you have interviewed but more importantly about the brands and what that says about those leaders as well yeah, it's a really special area, this. Um, I think the key for the inspired leaders is don't oversell yourself. Um, this is where uh, servant leadership, you know, leading by example, it's not a it's, uh, leadership. Someone once said, it's not about you. It's not about you at all. It's about the, the lives you touch, the brand you represent. And, and this particularly, so take Remitly Global with Matt and the number of the people that we've interviewed, Saima and... Um, anchor and you know uh various other people in limitly who who are really key for the brand um hilton hotels ben ben gugamon um lovely inspiring leader on the hr side ups we've obviously talked about uh, nando and then the military brands you know the seals uh john mccaskill episode 278 uh, the SAS with Corporal uh, Splash Ashton, very modest guy, episode 277 in his book, Seeking Down. Th those are the ones that uh, really uh, inspire me. And uh, it, it is it is about the brands they represent. They're not making it about themselves. Yeah. Do you know, that's very true because, um, you know, whether we've experienced, whether it's um, the Emirates Airlines or the Hilton Hotels or... <laughs> It's almost like the the vision for the organization and then the reality of when the the intersection between what's hoped for in terms of the vision and the kind of the customer experience um, at the front line mm -hmm. is really, it's true. And we went to Alcazar and um, in Dubai, which was just absolutely phenomenal. We must go back there. But all these wonderful brands that actually fundamentally transmit what the vision is right through to that end-to-end -end kind of in-the-moment service delivery with the customer. And I agree with you around um, the military as well. It's almost like we can go anywhere in the world. So we can go to, we can be on a beach in Sri Lanka. We can be on a, you know, um, in the, um, the Arctic Circle. We can be whatever. And you can always spot a military leader. And they don't have to say anything, but there's something about their presence their character, their integrity, that the way that they show up, the way that they communicate, that really runs through the very core of it. Um, and even when people will listen back over the podcast that you've had with different uh, military leaders from the US, from the UK, etc., they will hear that in the way that they think about what they're there in service of. I think this leads me on to the the final um, kind of component of the Inspiring Leadership Compass, which is you get all of the rest right, right route through to your brand, because it's an internal representation through to the external representation, which is about what people see um, and say about you when you're not in the room or when they're making consumer choices. And then the final component is, the, is legacy, LQ, which is stewardship. And, and it's almost like that courageous act. Uh, I go back to the Mark Carney piece, which is about is about values 
not just value. And so how do you make an impact in the world that goes far beyond value to owning something about leaving this world, leaving your organization, leaving your team in a better place than when you found it? Um, what have you learned about legacy and stewardship from your from your interviewees? Yeah, it's really important. I mean, some people say that you know, my legacy is my children, my wife when I'm gone. Uh, it is that. Um, some people think they have to have a huge legacy that's you know world famous. They built a bridge or a building or they've um, set up an organization. That's fine. But actually, I think of Brian J. Esposito, who's done many different businesses, a natural entrepreneur. He introduced us to Daniel. He was episode 174. And for him, legacy was the people he helped. Uh, for Sophie Neary, who was in Facebook and uh, is a very successful, uh, very inspirational woman, episode 177, uh, that she wants her legacy to be that she inspired and made a difference to people's lives. I think many of them want to make a difference. Um, and Manly Hopkinson, who's uh, quite a, a key sailor and you know explorer, 179, that he wants people to say that he lived life to the full. And I think uh, a legacy where you uh, you die on empty, you've given your all to everybody else uh, and you die with the tank empty, I think is a good way rather than um, my father always had a saying, don't die with the music still in you. And uh, I don't intend to die with the music still in me, which is why we're doing these podcasts. I'm sharing, sharing the music. Lovely. Well, I look forward to sharing that music with you over the many decades that hopefully we will be together and doing these podcasts for listeners. But I just want to say a huge thank you um, to sharing so much of your own personal story today um, and not just uh, those of your, your leaders. I think it's been such a rich podcast and so many top tips that I think leaders will take away. And particularly me, actually, running a foundation um, the, the the charity, um, there's so much I'm still learning. And so thank you so much on behalf of us all for being exceptional in what you do and bringing the top leaders from around the world to help to inspire people and create hope when we need it most. And there's so much that's out there that's not helpful and not hopeful, um, but you, you're crafting something that's far more positive. So thank you on behalf of everybody. Thank you very much, Lee. And thanks for being such a great host. Mm -hmm. I was pretty kind along the way as well. <laughs> you certainly were. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye.